Hello, and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Paul Smith, and in today's episode, I'm joined by the historian novelist Simon Seabag Montefiore. Should I call you Seabag? I've heard that people call you Seabag. It's lovely to be here, by the way. And yeah, I mean, only my mother calls me Simon, weirdly. Okay. Everyone calls me Seabag, so please do. Yeah, excellent. That's good. Seabag is here to talk about his latest novel, Red Sky at Noon. Red Sky at Noon is part of Seabag's Moscow trilogy, falling between One Night in Winter and Sashenka, although it's also a standalone novel. And he's brought along a number of objects that have shaped and influenced his writing. And I'm looking forward to hearing the stories behind the selections. Red Sky at Noon tells the story of Benya Golden, a writer imprisoned in the gulags for a crime he did not commit. When the Nazis invade Russia, Benya joins a penal battalion and is sent on a desperate mission behind enemy lines. It's a sweeping story of love and war. Where did the inspiration for this particular novel come from? This was inspired, really, by various stories in history. But it's an amazing thing that in the sort of summer of 1942, uh, when Hitler is charging across the southern plains of Russia, that much of the warfare took place on horseback. And so that was the original idea of the book, that it would just be fascinating to write about World War II, to write about love and war, and write about an aspect of it that no one had really written about before. So that was part of it. And then there's the love affair with the nurse. There's the presence of the Italians in Russia, which most people don't know about. And then there's the idea of this kind of Jewish-Russian writer, Benya Golden, riding with this crew of cutthroats, killers, Cossacks, Um, gangsters who were in these punishment battalions and they really existed and so that's an interesting idea as well and all of this is on these kind of boiling um, prairies of southern Russia so in a way it's a sort of the idea was a sort of western on the eastern front. Yeah it reminded me a little of Cormac McCarthy in that respect just um, the the vast open plains and Blood Meridian's one of my favourite books and there was that idea of how does any emotion survive in this bleak landscape when people's lives are just going so fast? I think we should hear something from the book in order to give the listeners a flavour. Um, we've got the audio book of Red Sky at Noon and we're going to hear the opening of the book read by Simon Bubb. The red earth was already baking and the sun was just rising when they mounted their horses and rode across the grasslands towards a horizon that was on fire. There are times in a life when you live breath by breath, jolt by jolt, looking neither forward nor backwards, living with a peculiar intensity, and this was one of those times. They had come out of the clump of poplar trees where they had spent the night, sleeping on their horse blankets, their heads on their saddlebags, fingers curled around their pistols, saddles and rifles lying beside them. Their horses stood over them, soft muzzles savouring the air, their deep brown eyes watching their masters, whom they knew so well. The captain awoke them one by one. They saddled the horses, tightening the girths under their bellies, inspecting hooves and fetlocks, stroking withers or neck, talking to them in soft voices. The horses tossed their heads at the horseflies that tormented them, their chests shivering, tails swishing, rolling their eyes at what lay just beyond the trees. The horsemen scanned the plains fretfully, each knowing that their future was as ominous as the land was boundless. Their struggle under the burning sun made no sense. They were hunted as well as hunters. Yet their thoughts were not hopeless, not at all, for each of them had known hopelessness before, 
and this was far better. Here, they could be redeemed by the blood of their mission. They believed this with a baleful conviction, and for some of them, it was the first decent thing they had ever done. Red Sky at Noon continues your long love affair with Russia. You've said that you're obsessed with Russia. Can you remember when that obsession began? Yeah, it began when I was very young and I read something about Stalin and Beria. Um, That was when I became interested in the history. But actually, we'd always been talking about Russia because my mother's family were Russian. They were Jews from Poland, from Odessa, from Lithuania. And so I'd grown up with the idea that I was partly Russian and that we had this kind of Russian connection. And so I sort of always felt I belonged there partly and I've spent all my life reading about it and studying it and so on. Russia is an obsession. These novels, the trilogy, they're really love stories. You can write about love, you can base it in Brighton or Brooklyn or Hampstead, but basing it in Russia adds passion, jeopardy, mystery, drama that you wouldn't find if you were setting it in British suburbia, for example. There's a long tradition of romantic Russian novels. Um, which ones were you influenced by on this on this particular book? Well, I mean, the greatest is War and Peace, of course. I mean, that's one of the great historical novels of all time. It contains several love affairs, and it's really about the background, about how war changes people, and that's what this book is about. This is really about, you know, how do you preserve, you know, as you said, you know, love, your personality, your decency when you're in this crucible of astonishing violence. And this book is set probably at one of the most evil moments in all of human history. Um, A bit like, you know, you mentioned Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. That was one of the books that influenced me. You're right. And, you know, that was also set in a time of complete amorality and savagery um, in the 1860s, just on the American frontier when they were fighting against American Indians um, many of them were renegade characters, psychopaths. And it's very. this is a very similar situation. You've got the SS murdering Jews by the millions, appalling um, slaughter on the Russian side too. And through it rides this sort of, ben, this character, Benya Golden, who's our hero. And when he meets Fabiana, the, you know, the Italian nurse, that is a relationship that is in many ways doomed. Well, as I said, you've brought a number of objects with you into the Penguin studio today. Your first object is a badge, and it's, uh, it seems to be a family coat of arms. It's golden, it has a lion uh, to the left of it, and some sort of hooved animal. It could be a deer or something like that. Yeah, what, can you is, explain more is, about this? Please? Yes, this is a rather wonderful thing. This is um, my family crest, the Montefiore family crest. And underneath it says Think and Thank, which is a very boring motto. God knows who thought of that. But as children, we had a very different version of it. I don't know if you can imagine what that might be. But the banners on the um, on the lions say Jerusalem. And that was that's also our family motto. So that's um, been, you know, being Jewish has been a big part of my life. And it's been a big part of this, this novel sequence, this trilogy, because the characters are basically Jewish families. And that meant that I could get inside the characters. And I could really understand them because I came from a family like this, with characters in it like this. And so that's very important. Sort of, You've got to have some knowledge of the sort of people you're writing about. And also, the life of a Jewish family in Russia is a very complex one, and that adds a certain drama to this. Um, there's been a lot of anti-Semitism in Russia itself, yet many of the top people in the Bolshevik party were, were Jewish. So that's part of it. But this crest hung on the bed of um, Sir Moses Montefiore, who was the sort of founder of our family um, and who was a sort of 
an oligarch, really, a sort of big um, financier in the 19th century and knew Queen Victoria and knew everybody, actually. And he's a fascinating person. And he was married to his wife, Judith, and they were incredibly um, grand and wealthy. They were partners with the Rothschild family. And they had their crests on everything, and we've inherited a lot of them. And this one hung on the bed, and they had a great relationship. But it was complicated because um, though he was devoted to Lady Judith, Moses Montefiore also had many love affairs. And as we've said, these books are really about family. My history books are about power, but these books are about love in desperate times, among other things, and whether love can survive the most brutal moment in human life, really. And oftentimes, people are having love affairs with people they shouldn't necessarily be having love affairs. Like in One Night in Winter, it's an adulterous love affair between two married people. In Sashenka, it is too. And in this book, it's with somebody on the other side. And so that I thought that would symbolise, since it hung over a marital bed once in the 19th century, I thought it would symbolise one of the themes of our book. certainly does. That's a rich heritage to draw upon. Let's hear another extract from the audiobook of Red Sky at Noon. In this extract, Benya is preparing to ride into battle. The adrenaline pumped into Benya's throat, making his palms slimy, his belly churn, and for a moment the heat made him dizzy. His parents were somewhere out there. Sometimes he knew they were dead, and he wanted to join them. But today, hope surged, and he was sure he would find them. For a moment, he recalled the woman he had loved in Moscow. He smelled the skin on Sashenka's throat, her grey eyes, the sinews in her neck straining as they made love. It was all so vivid that it made him ache. Life after her was truly an afterlife, ground down to its essentials. Trial and the camps. He had been at war for months now, but somehow this simple life, this lethal struggle, the company of Cossacks and their horses in the realm of sunflowers and grass, this empire of dust and horse sweat and gun oil, made him feel more alive than he could remember. If you had asked him later if he had been afraid, he would have said, Afraid? More terrified than you can ever know. And yet beyond fear, too. We are singing a song wrote Maxim Gorky, the great writer who had once been so kind to Benya, about the madness of the brave. Benya was riding to kill a man, perhaps many men, and struck with a presentiment of catastrophe, he was unlikely to survive. But he still believed in his own luck. He had to. They all had to. As she headed through the sunflowers, Silversox turned her head to the right, ears pricked, and Benya Golden felt her shorten her stride. She was telling him something. Panka and Preshepa were already dismounting, guns cocked. Benya rested his hand on the Puppersher submachine gun hanging over his shoulder. If you die now, he told himself, you died long before. Now, you're well known for your non-fiction as well as your novels, with best-selling titles including Young Stalin, Jerusalem the Biography and the Romanovs. Do you have a different approach when writing novels compared with writing history books? And do the two complement each other? I think they're very different. And um, I, I mean, I do write everything I write in a sort of cinematic and almost novelistic way. But they are so different. I mean, I think the thing is with fiction, you don't come to fiction to really learn history. 
But you know, if you really want to know that what really happened, you need to go to the great history books and read history with documents and so on. And those, so those are a very different discipline for me. But if you want to have a great story with a historically inspiring and factually correct background, then you know these novels will do that for you. And I'd be delighted if anybody was inspired to find out more about the history from these books. I mean, everything is accurate in it. But really, this is driven by story and character. And for me, that's a very different thing. I actually love writing novels. I've adored writing the trilogy. The characters have come to live for me. You know, people like Benya and Sashenka and Dashka, Satinov. These these are all invented characters. I mean, most of the leading characters in the book are all invented and imagined by me. And But for me, they've come to live. And actually, for a lot of people, I've had so many letters. I've even had people drawing the characters from the novels and sending them to me. So I've had a lot of that sort of thing, which is very yeah. satisfying. No, I, I think I'll definitely try and learn a little bit more about the, the period. My own historical knowledge is probably limited to pop music and that kind of thing. But this meticulous research that clearly goes into it, how much can you enjoy that kind of research? I do enjoy the research from my history books. And with the fiction, it's a very different sort of research, actually. I mean, everything has to be correct from the sort of what the phones look like, to the cars, to the pistols and so on, and to the movies that everyone watches. But actually, you know, it is an agony. It's great fun doing it. Yeah. And, you know, in this film, for example, I was sort of researching how people ride cavalry, you know, the relationship between a Cossack and his horse. Um, I was researching the Italians in Russia, which is just gripping. And when did you first come across the penal battalions that obviously are the lesser-known part of this? The penal battalions are an extraordinary story. I mean, they were created by Stalin, and they were kind of had a medieval, also almost Roman sort of idea behind them, which is that you could go and fight for your country if you were a criminal, but you could only win redemption. And they used the word redemption, but they meant freedom to be an ordinary person again. You could only kind of rub out your um, crimes if you either died in battle. That's no one's real, real definition of freedom. Or were wounded and shed blood. It actually, the law actually says shed blood um, in, for the motherland. That, that was written by Stalin. And so these punishment battalions really were legions of the damned. And to be in one was a very strange um, experience because you were almost dead. And they actually called themselves smirtniki, which means dead men. That deathly theme leads us on to our next object that you've brought for us. It's a, a skull dagger. Could you explain about this? From my view, it looks pretty mean. It's got wide open eyes, a long face, and it's putting the wind up me, I have to say. Yeah, it's a very spooky object. And I have it in... All these things are in my office, by the way. So these are all things I look at when I'm writing. But this is a machete, actually, from the Philippines. And it's a kind of spiritual fetish carried by tribesmen in a remote area and that is a monkey skull and its jaws have been cut off and put it also on the on the machete and it's to bring luck and to ward off death but the reason why I have it here today is because as we were talking earlier Red Sky at Noon takes place in probably the most barbaric moment in human history you've got the sort of Isatzgruppen SS brigades coming up killing massive numbers of people Jews mainly um, you know, it's a time when when many um, collaborators have defected from the Russian Soviet side and joined the Nazis and are joining in with them, killing Jews and other people. War is a strange thing which liberates some people and you can meet people you might never meet again. 
um, it also unleashes um, terrible monsters who are given power for a short time. The earth sort of tilts and somehow these people arise and them and their terrible, selfish, barbaric passions are given leave to do whatever they want and they are empowered by the, the crazy chaos of war. And, of course, that happened more than any other time in modern times in World War Two, And so that's why there's the machete with the monkey's skull. Thanks for bringing it. Let's head to Moscow now with another extract from the audiobook of Red Sky at Noon. In this clip, we meet Stalin in a meeting at the Kremlin. Far to the north, in Moscow. A small, tired old man wearing a military tunic and baggy grey trousers tucked into soft calfskin boots sat at a huge desk in a long office. His face was seared with exhaustion, bleached a sallow pockmarked grey. Outside, the Kremlin was draped in camouflage netting, and air balloons floated above the city to disorientate German bombers. Inside, the long table, the desk with the T-shaped extension and the chunky row of Bakelite telephones, the dreary drapes over the windows and the illuminated death mask of Lenin on the wall were unchanged. But now, the founder of Soviet Russia was joined on the walls by oil paintings of Tsarist paladins Suvorov and Kutuzov. This office, known to regulars as the Little Corner, was the headquarters of the Soviet armies, and the phone lines and telegraph wires in the communications room next door linked the man in this office to a boundless and often unpredictable and uncontrollable world of savage struggle between millions of men. We were tricked, said Stalin quietly. The whole South is collapsing. Our commanders are fools and yes-men. We lack good men. We still await the main offensive against Moscow. At the nearest end of the long table sat three men. Molotov, a squat blockhouse with a round head and pince-nez, nodded. The only one in civilian clothes, he wore a grey suit, grey tie and stiff white collar. He had the clammy pallor of the bureaucrat who never saw the sun a condition known to Stalin's familiars as the Kremlin Tan. You're right, comrade Stalin, said Lavrenti Biria, the People's Commissar of Internal Affairs, Chief of the Secret Police. Wearing his blue-tabbed NKVD uniform, he was broad-spanned and grey-faced, but bristling with ingenuity, vigilance, ferocity. The third of them, Hercules Satinov, dressed as an army colonel-general, spoke up. Comrade Stalin, I believe this is the main German offensive. They are throwing everything against the Don and the Caucasus. We made the wrong judgment. There is no Moscow offensive. I myself was mistaken and I wish to take responsibility, and if you believe it necessary, stand trial. We were tricked. Stalin stared witheringly at Satinov for a long moment. Until today, he might have called him a fool, a traitor, perhaps even ordered his arrest. But Satinov, his favourite, and, like him, another Georgian, had always told him the truth. And now he needed the truth. Six weeks earlier, on the 19th of June, a German stock plane had crashed behind Soviet lines near Kharkov. Inside was a staff officer, Major Reichel, with a briefcase that contained the plans for Hitler's southern offensive. Case Blue. Hours later, 
Those plans were reviewed in this very room by Stalin, accompanied by the same Greek chorus of Molotov, Beria, and Satinov. It's a trick, Stalin had said. It's classic disinformation. The bastards expect us to fall for this. The southern offensive will be a diversion. The big offensive will be against Moscow. The three Politburo members had agreed, as they always did. But now it was clear they had called it wrong, and Hitler's panzers were charging across the southern plains towards Stalingrad. Russia was about to be cut in half. That was another audiobook extract from Red Sky at Noon. What was it like writing about Stalin again? You know him inside out as much as any historian can. When did your interest in him as a character start? I was always very fascinated about him, even as a child. I think he's one of the most kind of complex characters of modern times. And if you're going to write history, you want to spend your time with somebody pretty fascinating. You have to immerse yourself in the subject. You want to write about a titanic figure of great complexity. My definition is as somebody who even their laundry is interesting. But in terms of the novel, the strange thing is I think in these novels I get closer to, to the real Stalin than I actually do in the history books because the history books one's limited by documents, archives. Here I kind of, th this, is, this is the real Stalin and I think this is I think how he thought. He, he's always interesting. I've, I've used where possible his own words and things that really happened. Um, for example, in the book, uh, he telephones a, a sort of minor um, officer in the middle of the night and talks to him and tells him what to do. Well, that might seem a completely unlikely thing, but actually he did do that. You know, he would suddenly say, get me Captain So-and-so on the phone. And somehow through all the sort of telephone systems of Russia, they would put him through to this person and this person would be woken in the middle of the night and they'd say, Stalin's on the phone. And he'd say, you've got to be joking and they'd say, no, it really is, just speak to him. And so he'd tell them, what, you know, he'd say, you're the key moment in, in our battle, you've got, to, you've got to hold the front. You talked about archives there. I think you visited the Kremlin archive. What kind of experience is that like? Well, the archives in Russia are, 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 are really fascinating. And, you know, for a while they were all opened, and that was amazing. And I was lucky enough to work on the Stalin ones. And, you know, you're looking at, amazing decisions of life and death taken and you can see it actually in the handwriting in the right there on, on and bits of paper that still smell of his pipe smoke but also there's a lot of funny stuff you know he was always right he did things like he wrote the sort of words for the national anthem and um and for musicals and movies and stuff and that's all there and there's also a lot of playful stuff with his daughter Svetlana and she's a character in this book and in fact you know I, there, are, there are sort of really two love affairs in the book. One is at the bottom of Russian society, at the front, on these kind of Russian prairies, in this penal battalion, this you know struggling to survive, and his love affair with the Italian nurse. And at the very top, in the Kremlin, there's the love affair of Stalin's 16-year-old daughter, Svetlana, with a 40-year-old um, married screenwriter. Naturally, when Stalin finds out about this, he's not too happy. <laughs> um, has your opinion about Stalin changed? I mean, must it, I'm assuming it must have as a, as a person from when you first started all of the research that you've done on him. What, what, what's changed for you from your preconceptions to where you are now in your understanding of him? Well, a lot. I mean, I, you know, when I started off, we used to just believe that these people like Hitler and Stalin were all these kind of Mephistophelian monsters who were kind of at best really insane 
and at worst were simply kind of satanic sort of spirits of darkness. But in fact, all of them were politicians working in a political world, and that's what's scary about them, actually. And that's why people have said my books humanise them. They show them in, in home, you know, what they read, what they ate, love affairs and so on. But actually, I think it's much more useful to understand how people come to power and how freedoms are slowly broken down and how dictatorships arise. They're not, they don't suddenly become dictators. And um, that's the fascinating thing. But in the novel, you know, in this novel and in the other ones, he's, he's a character in all of the three in the trilogy. And people love reading about him. He is sort of always a chilling character. Well, that brings us on to your next object, which is a vase with Stalin's face on it. Can you describe its significance to you? Yeah, please? this is, I mean, I've got various images of, of Stalin in my, um, in my room. I have stuff that sort of, whatever I'm writing about, I have on my desk. And this is from communist China, um, where he's still uh, revered. And so this is a vase to hold, um, actually to hold perfume in it, which was for sale in, in China, and I brought it back. But it's just to remind us of Stalin. Yes, I mean, Stalin is a huge character in Russian history. And in the novels, you know, you see the way that Stalin um, managed everything, micromanaged the war. And we see him as war leader. We also see him as father. And the one person he couldn't control uh, was his daughter. And like all of us, our children are beyond beyond <laughs> any control. And so Svetlana, to his amazement, defies him, um, has an affair with a much older man. And so this is a side of Stalin you probably haven't seen before. Let's dip into the audiobook of Red Sky at Noon again. Benyer walked alone out to the training arena and leaned on the white railing. The night was rosy and soft, a true sumyaki one of those perfect summer nights when it was so hot that no one could sleep and the air had the texture of creamy velvet. It was a night, thought Benya, for a boulevardier to walk a girl he hopes to kiss. The horizon flashed. The guns boomed, seemingly ever closer. Sometimes he heard the roar of engines as tanks detrained at the station and moved towards the front. Somewhere, Across the Don, thousands of Russians were fighting for survival, and somewhere very close, Polyak's body was being dumped into an unmarked grave dug in this rich black earth. Had they shot the boy pour encourager les autres to instill discipline in this unreliable crew, Benya wondered, or had the imminent transfer to the front simply terrified Polyak into wounding himself? The solitude was a tonic to Benya. One of the torments of the camps and of the army was the loss of personal space. He craved the luxury of loneliness. That is why he adored the space of the steps. He often walked out here at night to smoke, to dream, and often he remembered his daughter who lived with her mother, Benya's estranged wife. Were they safe in Brussels or Paris, or had they made it to Madrid or London? His daughter must be a young woman now. He had not seen her for years. Then there were his parents. Odessa had fallen to Hitler's allies, the Romanians, who were said to have unleashed such havoc that most of the Jews of the city had been slaughtered in the streets. Could such a thing have happened to them? Or had they escaped eastwards? And then he looked up at the stars, and Sashenka came to him. Was she even alive? 
he was overcome with a wave of love. He craved her lips, the stretch of the tendons behind her knees when her legs were around him. If she was reachable out there somewhere, he sent her kisses. I love you, he whispered. But though he strained to hear something back, there was no sound, not even an echo. Of all the people in the world whom he loved, he did not know if a single one of them was alive. That was another clip from the audiobook of Red Sky at Noon. Let's talk about Benya, the main character. What, what sort of a character is he? Well, he's a writer, and he's a great lover of literature and of women. And he's a highly sensitive character. He's Jewish. He's travelled across Europe. He's been in Italy and Spain and Paris. Um, he's a man of the world. And so in some ways he's very ill-suited to the cruel and sort of austere Stalinist Russia. And he appears in all the novels. In, in Sashenka he has a love affair with a, with a woman he shouldn't have a love affair with. And that leads to his personal destruction. He loses everything. He goes from being a famous writer to being a prisoner in the gulags in the Far East gold mines, which is a sort of life of hell, which no one can live very long and no one can survive very long. He survives, and this is in the book, he, he starts the book in, in the gulags, and he survives because a gangster boss uh, wants him to tell stories and teach him about literature. And this was about the only way, as a writer, you could really survive in the gulags, being protected by a criminal boss. So that's what happens in, in the book. Of course, he wants to fight the Nazis and he's allowed to join a punishment battalion and sent into the front on horseback. And I don't want to give the ending away, but it's a strange, you know, terrible things happen and yeah. um, you'll see if he, if he makes it. But he's a very attractive character and he's really based, actually, on a very famous Soviet writer called Isaac Babel, who's one of my favourite uh, writers, short story writers. And he actually fought as a young man in, 19, in, the, in, in the Russian Civil War 20 years before World War II in a Cossack regiment, and he rode with them, and that really inspired... You asked at the beginning what was the inspiration. That's yeah. the inspiration of this story. What's it like listening to your audio book and hearing the characters brought to life? I think it's beautifully read. Does, and, does the um, character come alive even more, having heard it from a bit of an objective point of view? Yes. I mean, it's like, it, it's, it's wonderful to hear it. It's inspiring. And, and it's almost like hearing it all again. Actually, I can never remember actually writing the words on any of these books. So hearing it, I'm thinking like, God, this is quite a story. Yeah. Well, we've talked about your Stalin vase. So we'll move on to your next object, which is in some way related. It's um, another piece of merchandise. This is a Vladimir Putin Russian doll. That's right. Because um, inside it, it has... Because it's, it's a Russian doll, so it has Putin on the outside, and then if you, as you open it, you, you get all the Russian leaders ah. right back to the czars. So it's actually very appropriate for me as someone who's written a lot about Russia. Yeah. But the reason why I've got Putin is because, at the moment, the Russian government is very keen to sort of promote the glory of World War II and Russia and World War II. And... Actually, the story that they don't want told is in this novel, and that is a story of the about a million Russians who defected to become collaborators with the Nazis. And this story tells about the Cossacks, the Kalmyks, and other peoples who joined the German cavalry at this point in 1942. What are your views on, on Putin as a leader? Pretty fascinating character. You know, I think that, you know, you don't survive and prosper in the Kremlin for 17 years, 18 years, without some, some political talents. So he's obviously a pretty impressive person. He works in Stalin's office still. 
you know, he's very aware of history and he's kind of merging the Romanov sort of majesty of the Romanov emperors with the grim authority of someone like Stalin. People in his entourage have referred to him as a czar. Do you think that's a suitable label? Very much so, (laughs) very much so. He is the czar. In the news, we hear a lot about the links between Russia and the US every day. Um, What are your thoughts about that relationship? Two things. I mean, one is that Donald Trump, obviously, is a sort of man who'd love to have been a sort of macho, swaggering Russian strongman like Putin. But having only been a reality show host, you know, he hasn't done that and he longs to be like that. So there's a bit of sort of schoolboyish crush here going on, I think. And then there's this, the other thing is that, you know, Trump wants to be the first American czar, basically, to have the power of an American czar. So Trump is a dangerous character. From the Russian point of view, you know, Putin and Russian intelligence have managed to create a schism between an American commander-in-chief and his security agencies. This is the greatest coup of Russian espionage in all of history. Um, Would you like to write a novel about this particular period in time? I would. My next novel I want to write is actually um, about a Russian in the West, set now, and not as a historical novel. Because I feel that with this trilogy, I'm really... I love this trilogy. I'm really excited by it. And I feel that it's, it's a wonderful, complete portrait of... Russia in the 20th century, but also a study of, of love in dangerous times. Well, let's hear a final extract from the audiobook read by Simon Bubb. As I said, this is a story of love as well as of war, and one of the romantic leads is Stalin's own daughter, who we've already spoken about, Svetlana. Let's hear this extract. Svetlana Stalina, red-haired and freckly, jumped to her feet. Papa, you look exhausted. She threw herself into his arms and he kissed her forehead. Why aren't you in bed, girl? It's after midnight. I'm sixteen, Papa, and I have to do my homework. It's good you are working, he said. Everyone must work for the motherland. Can I feed you, Papa? (laughs) My little sparrow can cook, but I've eaten. I heard the Germans are nearing Stalingrad. Can this be true? Pah! What's with the question, Sveta? Who are these panic mongers you talk to? Papa's girl doesn't listen to foolish chatter. Kiss your old peasant Papa goodnight and finish your homework. After he had gone to his study at the back of the apartment, Svetlana sat down again, and for a moment she dreamed of the things that all teenage girls dream of. She had never had a boyfriend. No one would touch her. She was Stalin's child and none of them wanted her. Your friends will want to worm their way into the family because you're Stalin's daughter, her father had warned. But on the contrary, all the boys she knew were afraid of her. She was the princess in the Kremlin fortress, the girl in the tower. At the Joseph Stalin Communal School 801, she saw her friends meeting boys after lessons, walking around the patriarchy pool, even kissing in the Alexandrovsky Gardens right outside the Kremlin. Not her. Never her. If only she could fall in love and someone could love her back. She threw aside her book and started to read an article in Krasnaya Zvezda, or Red Star, the Red Army newspaper. It was by a correspondent called Lev Shapiro who reported from the Stalingrad front. A few writers stood out. The novelist Ehrenberg with his murderous bombast, a younger writer called Grossman, and this Shapiro, 
whose tales of the carnage in the South hid none of the tragedy of war. Yet he saw the world through such romantic eyes. Who was he? His words reached her, even here in her tower. That was another extract from the audiobook of Red Sky at Noon. Do you enjoy writing the romantic storylines of the novel as much as the war elements? Well, this is the first... I mean, this is the first novel, first time in my life I've written an action novel about, you know, riding, um, about the actual physicality of violence. So that's been an amazing experience, and I've loved doing that. But I do really love, above everything else, um, love writing about love. I'm an absolute romantic, and I believe in in love in all its different manifestations. You know, the love you have for your wife, which is a sort of building love, the love you have feel children, which is a sort of nurturing love. And, you know, in, and in terms of these great stories of wartime romance and heartbreak, the heartbreaking, passionate love you, that, that people have for a lover that is in some way doomed or, or illicit or, or impossible in some way. And I sort of live, when I'm writing these, I absolutely live these love affairs and think a lot about them. And I, I cry as I write the sort of the end always because all of them are sort of heartbreaking in a way as well as I hope being inspiring. I was very moved by the love between our hero and his horse Silver Socks which um, you know is almost stronger than <laughs> because it's it's you know it's the one one of the continuous relationships in such an intense period of his life. Yeah as well. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's such an important part of the book the horse Silver Socks is one of the leading characters and it is a love affair and that's what the Cossacks say. They say you've got to treat your horse partly like your daughter and partly like your mistress. And um, the horse is the one thing that can keep you alive in wartime and you need that horse more than anything. And, of course, the horse, the love affair with the horse is also a very important romance in the book. So we've had our final clip. Let's have a look at your final object. This is a name sign, and I, th- I believe it's your father's office name sign, is that correct? Yes, it's the, this is the plaque outside my father's um, surgery in London, where he was a doctor, and I've inherited it, and he's died a few years ago. And I've got it here because this book's all about family, but it's also about a nurse. And nurses play a special role in wartime literature. And those those of you who know and love Hemingway's um, Farewell to Arms, for example, or Pasternak's Dr. Zhivago, uh, we'll know that nurses, or, or, the, or of course the English patient, which is another yeah. favourite, um, we'll know that nurses play a special part in wartime romances because people are thrown together and these nurses often were, were caring for damaged, wounded um, men and oftentimes, of course, this led to romance. And one of the things about wartime is the sort of way it throws together people who would never normally meet. And this is never truer than in um, Red Sky at Noon. But, you know, when I was growing up, my father's medical background taught me a lot of things. And that's why, for example, in the other novel in the, um, in, in the trilogy, One Night in Winter, the heroine is a female doctor, Dashka, who's a wonderful character too. So I'm always kind of always very aware of medical families. And I came from a very medical family. And one thing it taught me was about stories. I, when I was growing up, my father and my mother we used to talk about their patients and stuff and I knew many secrets and they always said to me never tell anybody what you hear in this house because um, you could you know that's against the rules of the Hippocratic Oath but it gave me a, a fascinating um, taste for the way families act and personalities and so on so it was a great training 
for a writer. Well, thanks for bringing all of those objects in. Um, what's next for you? I mean, we, you spoke about wanting to write another novel in the future, but what's on the immediate horizon? Well, they're making movies of a lot of my books now and drama series. So Lionsgate is now trying to make Jerusalem. Angelina Jolie is making Catherine the Great and Potemkin. Somebody else is making Young Stalin. And I'm very excited. Next week I'm meeting with, with, with someone who wants to make the trilogy into an ongoing drama series. So that's taking up a lot of my time now, and it's lovely to do something so different, and I, I'm, I'm excited about it. Well, thanks very much for coming in and sharing your views and talking about the book on the Penguin podcast. Read this book. That's my closing gambit. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's been really fun. New from Penguin Random House Audio. Anthony Beaver's Stalingrad is a harrowing look at one of history's darkest moments. Winner of the Samuel Johnson Prize, the Wolfson Prize for History and the Hawthornden Prize for Literature, Stalingrad tells the extraordinary story of tactical genius, civilian bravery, obsession, carnage and the nature of war itself. At Stalingrad, the 6th Army's frontline divisions contained over 50,000 Soviet citizens in German uniform. Some had been brutally press-ganged into service through starvation in prison camps. Others were volunteers. During the final battles, many German reports testify to the bravery and loyalty of these heavies fighting against their own countrymen. Needless to say, Beria's NKVD became frenzied with suspicion when it discovered the scale of the disloyalty. The subject is still taboo in Russia today. An infantry colonel with whom I happened to share a sleeping compartment on the journey down to Volgograd, the former Stalingrad, refused at first to believe that any Russian could have put on German uniform. He was finally convinced when I told him of the Sixth Army ration returns in the German archives. His reaction, for a man who clearly loathed Stalin for his purges of the Red Army, was interesting. They were no longer Russians, he said quietly. His comment was almost exactly the same as the formula used over 50 years before when Stalingrad Front reported on former Russians back to Sherbakov in Moscow. The emotions of the Great Patriotic War remain almost as unforgiving today as at the time. The whole story of folly, pitilessness and tragedy is revealing in a number of unexpected ways. On the German side, the most striking aspect does not lie so much in the overt issue of Wehrmacht involvement in war crimes, still so hotly debated in Germany today. It lies in the confusion of cause and effect, especially the confusion between political beliefs and their consequences. German troops in Russia, as so many letters written from Stalingrad reveal, were in complete moral disarray. The objectives of subjugating the Slavs and defending Europe from Bolshevism through a preemptive strike proved counterproductive, to say the least. To this day, many German survivors still see the Battle of Stalingrad as a clever Soviet trap into which they'd been enticed by deliberate withdrawals. Immerse yourself in this tour de force of military history. Available now to download and own from Audible and iTunes. <laughs>